Good morning. You can be seated. It's great to see everybody this morning. My name is Craig Darling. You can see that up there. I don't have to explain that, I don't think. Uh, one of the elders of the church, it's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, I, I've been praying about this morning, and just little shots of prayer when I'm driving to practice or on the practice field at Western Michigan or at Aldi's doing something, I just keep thinking, what do I want for God to do this morning? And, I, and here's what I've been praying. I, I've been praying that we would be a more hopeful people this morning because we heard the word preached to us this morning. And so I'm, I'm asking God that today you would be more hope-filled than you were yesterday. And I get that from a little text that's tucked back in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It says, everything that was written in past days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. Do you see that the scriptures give us hope? And that's how come we pay attention to them. And that's how come we preach. So that we might be the most hope-filled people around in a hopeless environment. Uh, Pastor Brian obviously is gone. He contacted me way back in April and said, do you want to do a message, do you have any openings this summer? And I gave him several. And for some reason, he put me on this date, on the probably next to the last sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, and I think I know why. Uh, this is a tough text that we're going to take on this morning. And uh, there's a theologian by the name of F.F. F. Bruce. He's considered to be the top theologian in the 20th century of, of New Testament theology. He wrote a little book called Hard Sayings of Jesus, this is one of them this morning. So I think what Brian was thinking was, hey, you know, that's a pretty tough text. I might not come out looking so good. I'll give this to Craig. <laughs> I'll come out smelling like a rose. He'll come out smelling like a mildewed fig or some <laughs> such thing. Now, I also want to tell you that the last part of this text, we're going to read it in just a moment, uh, is about perspective. Jesus' perspective and human perspective. And Jesus' perspective, quite honestly, is always perfect. No doubts about it. But human perspective is always tainted by our sin, by our remaining corruption. And very often, human perspective is inadequate and sometimes it's even false. And so I want you to keep that in mind. It reminds me of the story of this teenage girl who invited her 20-year-old boyfriend to come to dinner for the first time with her parents. And after dinner, she jumped up, raced into the kitchen where her mom was prepping dessert. And she said, hey, mom, what'd you think of Vince? And mom looked up from her whip toppings and said, um, well, I didn't mind the tattoos all over his body. And he did kind of say some rather crude things during the course of the meal. And that t-shirt he had on was just disgusting. Honey, I'm not so sure Vince is such a good guy. And the daughter looked back at her mother and scowled and said, of course he's a good guy. Why else would he be doing 500 hours of community service? <laughs> it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. 
And there's one last thing I want to tell you, just about the Sermon on the Mount. We're almost done with it. But this is a very important part of Scripture. And the Sermon on the Mount is not so much a how-to, but it's a who you are. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so, not a how-to, it's a who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Now, would you stand as we read this morning the Word of God? We're in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Please be seated. When I was pastoring years ago, I used to drive to Wheaton, Illinois, to College Church of Wheaton. It was pastored by a guy by the name of Dr. Kent Hughes. Kent was a wonderful pastor, very gracious man, a prolific writer. He wrote a whole New Testament series. We would do a day of theology with other pastors and uh, Christian leaders and work, workers, and we did that every quarter. And uh, Dr. Hughes wrote a little volume, wrote a little book that I think a lot of people kind of overlook. And this was the name of his book. It was, the title of the book is a question. And here's what, here's what the title says. Are evangelicals born again? Question mark. Are evangelicals, that's us by the way, born again? And the subtitle is this. The character traits of true faith. And he begins his book by speaking of a man in his congregation who came to him, an established businessman in the community. He was the son of a well-known Christian in that community. He was raised with Christian education. He'd served on various boards of Christian ministries. He'd been involved in church activities. And as he came to Pastor Hughes, they met and they began to talk. And he was troubled and he sat down, and as he, as he began to explain what was going on, he started to talk about the fact that his business had just been exposed to many unethical practices 
some illegal, maybe illicit practices. And all this was soon to be exposed. Things which he had known about, things which he allowed to persist. And all this was soon to be made known to public. And this would obviously um, bring exposure to him, to his family, his reputation, his public image, even to the greater body of Christ. He came in as a broken man. He was humbled. And as Pastor Hughes began to just delve a little bit into his life of faith and how that had implications for his business, and he probed the depths of some of this deceit, this man began to say, you know what? I'm not sure I'm even a Christ follower. Raised in a Christian family, educated in the church, educated in Christian schools, heard the gospel in Sunday school, heard the word preached day in, week in, week out, experienced all the benefits of being in a Christian community, wife and kids, believers, and yet not confident he was born of the Spirit of God. He did all the things, he bore all the trappings of a Christian. Externally, he appeared to know Jesus. But then the spiritual facade collapsed. He looked like a believer. And the pastoral counsel that Pastor Hughes gave him was that you need to do self-examination. And you know, that day, this man, this very Christian-appearing businessman, with his practices exposed, bowed in humility to Jesus, and was born of the Spirit of God. Now this morning, as we examine the final thoughts of Jesus, and really the warnings of Jesus, we're going to learn these two things. We're going to learn that our spiritual identity is evidenced by the fruit our lives produce, and secondly, our assumptions regarding our spirituality, our love for God, can often be deceptive. Can often be deceptive. So let's look at this. Our spiritual identity is evidenced or recognized by the fruit our life produces. I want us to go back to our text for just a minute and look at it. You can see it up here. Um, in this text, Jesus is addressing false teachers. He's addressing false teachers, but there's a broader application to this whole thing. He's going to talk about fruit. There's a broader application that applies to identifying those that are truly of the faith and those that are not of the faith. And so it's not just about false teachers. We'll see that again when we read this text in Luke chapter 6. We'll do that in a moment. So there's a bigger principle that I want you to see here. Now, I'm going to reread this again. Uh, I'm going to read it out of my Bible. And I want you to listen. And I'm going to ask you, as I read this first little portion of our text, I want you to count how many times... Matthew, actually Jesus speaks this, but Matthew records this. How many times does he say the word fruit or fruits? 
So I think you can calculate the number in your head. Some of the elder board may need to count on their fingers, I don't know. So we'll see. So listen up and then you can tell me afterwards. So I don't need any early answers, just wait till I'm done. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. How many? Seven. That's exactly right. Seven times. So those of you that have done inductive Bible study or you study your Bible, when you hear something that is repeated seven times, what does that indicate to you? It's important. That's exactly right. This is a priority that you understand this, that this fruit stuff means something significant to every person that counts themselves a believer in Jesus. And fruit is a popular metaphor throughout the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for instance, in uh, Psalm chapter 1, it says this, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Do you see the correlation? The man who walks with God, not in sin, not listening to the world, not mocking the church and Jesus, that person is likened to a healthy tree that is bearing good fruit. We go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14, and it says this, the backslider will be filled with the fruit of his ways. So also the good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And in Isaiah chapter 3, it says this, tell the righteous that it shall be good for them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. And then Jesus says this as we jump to the New Testament. There's multiple verses. Jesus says this very poignantly. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. And I think what he means there is that if you have turned away from your past and turned to Jesus and you're following Jesus, your life should reflect that. Bear fruit in keeping with your turning away from your past and doing the things that Jesus would want. And even more emphatically, Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 8. He says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and thus prove to be my disciples. Discipleship, to Jesus is linked to bearing much fruit. And that's how we glorify God. And finally, I, I won't bore you with any more of these scriptures, 
But in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we have the fruit of the Spirit. What manifests out of the life of a, a believer when the Spirit of God is living in them? These characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, these emanate from a Christian's life. There is no rule book. There is no law. There's no little tin like if I don't drink, if I don't smoke pot, if I don't do drugs, if I don't go there, if I don't. You know, it's not that. That's not what it is. There is no rule book, no law for Christians to say if I do these things, I'm good. It comes from the Spirit working itself out in one's life. In one's life. And so we see that Jesus' intention here is pretty serious. It's sobering. You know, a thorn bush can't exist that it insists it's a grapevine. A diseased tree can't say, hey, look at I'm the picture of health when its fruit is putrid or non-existent. That's what Jesus is communicating. I want to take you to... Um, I think this is right, yep. This is Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six. And I want you to hear what Luke says in regard to all this. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Scott did a wonderful job of talking about heart issues. What does our heart treasure? What does your heart treasure this morning? Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor thieves can break in. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I have a friend in Minneapolis named John Bloom. John is the co-founder of Desiring God Ministries. He went to church with us when we lived there. And John is a, a wonderful writer. Everything he writes, I benefit from. And he gave me some insight into this, and I want you to, I want you to hear it because I think it's significant this morning. John quotes a poem, he said, that has been in his heart for some 20 years. And the last lines of this little poem says this. The heart is known by its delights. Pleasures never lie. And then he says this. Pleasure is our heart's way of telling us where our treasure lies. This is his word, pleasure is the whistleblower to what you treasure. Pleasure is our heart's way of telling us where our treasure lies. 
So if ungodly, evil things bring you pleasure, like illicit sex, that's pleasure temporarily. Porn, that can give you a pulse of pleasure. Revenge, some people live with that and find great, great satisfaction in it. Arrogance, superiority, accumulate, and whatever it is. If ungodly things give us pleasure, the pleasure trigger is working just fine in our lives. What's askew and what's wrong is what our heart loves. Pleasure is our heart's way of telling us where our treasure lies. Does it lie in the things of God, in the things of the church, of the things that are spiritual? Or does it lie elsewhere? Pleasure never lies. It shows our treasure. It shows what we love. And so what Jesus is teaching here, I think, pleasure, whether it's good or bad, this pleasure-giving treasure cannot be concealed for too long. Pretty soon it works out of our unseen, the things that are unseen in our heart that only we know and God knows in the things that we do and the things that we don't do, the things that we say and the things that we don't say. It begins to manifest itself by what we do. And Jesus teaches us to identify true and false believers by looking at their fruit based on what their heart believes. What do you treasure this morning? It's a pretty simple assessment, a pretty simple process. And if I were to put up one word this morning, Jesus is teaching us recognition, recognition. Uh, back before my senior year at the University of Iowa, I went to Campus Crusades the summer before my last season of playing at Iowa. I went to Campus Crusade for Christ Institute of Biblical Studies out in San Bernardino, California for four weeks. And um, I met this guy named Craig, Craig Snyder. Craig was a small guy, but he loved talking about athletics. And somehow he knew athletes from his school. He was from the University of Florida, the Gators. And he had all this information about the Gators. He always was talking to me about football in the Big Ten. And he told me this story. He said he was being disciples on his campus by a guy named Bob. And Bob had played football at Bowling Green. He was an offensive tackle, big barrel-chested guy, floppy hair, lost some weight, but he was still a big guy. And he was the Campus Crusade staff guy that was discipling Craig. And one day they were in their student union and they had their Bibles open. They were doing some sort of transferable concept, talking about things. And all of a sudden, this big, huge defensive lineman for the Gators comes by. And he somehow knows Craig. I guess as a freshman, he met him. And he sees him and he sort of stops. And I'll just say his name's Chad. It's not his name. But Chad stops and he kind of looks down and he's kind of this burly, strong looking guy. But Chad had a reputation, rowdy, party, all those kinds of words. And he said, hey, what are you doing? He knows Craig. And Craig kind of gets a little nervous. He says, um, well, we're just doing this little Bible study together. And he plops down and sits next to him. And he says, well, that's cool. I'm a Christian. And now Craig gets really nervous. 
And he starts saying, well, that's really neat. And yeah, have a seat. Because he knows Bob over here, Bowling Green Bob, is going to have something to say. And after a pause of a few moments, Bob, in a very deep and authoritative voice, looks at this kid, this burly football player, and he says, Chad, can you tell me one thing about your life that would indicate to me that you're a Christian? And the kid sat there in silence, stunned. And you know what Bowling Green Bottom was doing? He was just applying Jesus' teaching. That's all he was doing. He was applying Jesus' teaching. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So our spiritual identity is indicated or evidenced by the fruit that our lives produce. And let's see, I think I said recognition. There's a second point that I want you to see here this morning. And that's this, that our spiritual assumptions can be deceptive. Our spiritual assumptions can be deceptive. Let's just read this second part of our text this morning. This is what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now I want us to just take a look at this for a moment and see a couple things. So that's just a picture of my family. (laughs) It was a bookmark. (laughs) So Jesus teaches us some stuff here, and I want you to pay attention to the text. You know, you can listen to me, you can listen to Pastor Brian, you can listen to anybody that's up here, Scott, or other pastors who do great things, but you know what? What we have to say doesn't really matter that much because it's the scriptures that speak to us. It's the scriptures that instruct us. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. All scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for, re- for training in righteousness. So the scriptures, if you don't have, think about the scriptures, you don't transform very well in your spiritual life. So I want you to look at this text. And there's a couple observations I want you to see. In verse 21, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that Jesus does is he says that spiritual hypocrisy is a reality. It is a reality. Not everyone is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if you go back to that first set of verses, remember that little judgment piece? Every tree that doesn't bear fruit is what? Thrown into the fire. 
Now, I'm not going to talk about that long, but it's there, and we can't ignore that. Spiritual hypocrisy is a reality. And then if you jump down, well, you notice he says, Lord, Lord, and I want you to just take note of that, but I want you to go down to verse 22. Now, watch the text very carefully. On that day, on that day, there will be a day for all people of accountability. On that day, Jesus testifies to it. On that day, many will come to me. And I want you to look at the word many. It's the same word that Jesus uses, or actually Mark records in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says this. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same word. And and how many people did Jesus give his life as a ransom for? Tons. And Jesus seems to say, many will come to me on that last day. This is not some sort of one isolated person, one aberration. Many people apparently are going to be deceived. There is the reality of spiritual hypocrisy. And I want you to notice what they're doing in that text. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and do mighty works? It seems to me they were doing some pretty hefty spiritual lifting. And yet Jesus says, hey, I never knew you. I'll be honest, I've known this verse for decades. And it scares me. Because I know that there are people that think, well, hey, you know, I cooked burgers for the senior high retreat. I ushered, I went to the women's retreat. I baked for the cookie sale. You know, I, I came occasionally. I gave to the benevolence fund. You know, we say these little things, but you know, We can do kind of Christian exterior things, but what about our heart? That's a key issue, what we treasure. And these guys apparently thought, hey, they'd done enough. They had all the external stuff going on. And then I want you to look at these words. Lord, Lord. Says it twice, verse 21 and verse 22. Lord, Lord. And this is what we call a Hebrew idiom. And in the Old Testament particularly, you will see this again and again, the repetition of the name. And so when Jesus repeats a name, or I'm sorry, when when Matthew repeats the name here, Lord, Lord, it indicates a very special relationship with that person, a, a, a kind of transparent love, a tender affection, an intimate attachment, a loving connection. So when these guys come, here's what they're saying. Lord, Lord, hey man, we really love you. Right on. And you see this uh, in the Old Testament, for instance, Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac and he has the dagger raised up and he's about ready to thrust it through the chest of his son and the angel of the Lord comes and says, Abraham, Abraham. Now I know that you love me. Or in the book of Samuel, when Samuel was a young boy, he's been dedicated by Hannah, 
given over to Eli to be raised, and he's waking up at night hearing this voice, and the voice finally says to him, Samuel, Samuel, your servants here, Lord, speak. Even Jesus, when he went up and looked over Jerusalem, you may remember this text, Matthew 23, and he looks down and he sees Jerusalem and he cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how I long to gather you as a mother chick gathers her chi- a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here, these people say, Lord, Lord, I'm on your team. I never knew you. And that's sobering. That's sobering. A few years ago, um, I had a football player come to me and he said, hey, PC, I, people call me PC, the football guys, mostly athletes, Pastor Craig, PC, hey, PC, do you baptize people? I go, yeah, I, I could baptize you. He said, I want to get baptized. I said, fine. Um, let's get together and talk about it. I'd like to hear your story. So this is a, this is a really good player, young player, and uh, lots of fun, happy-go-lucky kid. And I'll just call him Josh. And so Josh and I get together, and I say, Josh, just tell me, why, what's going on in your life that you want to get baptized? And he goes, well, my cousin, he got, he got baptized, and I'm pretty close to him, and I thought, maybe I should get baptized. And I said, well, I guess there's some legitimacy. To, I didn't say that, but I was kind of like going, okay. And then I said, Josh, do you understand what it means to be baptized? And I didn't know this kid that well, so I hadn't probed into his spiritual life a whole lot. And I explained to him, when you're baptized, you basically are saying, I am going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. I am identifying with Jesus. I'm identifying with his life, his death, his burial. When you go under those baptismal waters, you're identifying to his death, and you too are dying to your past. You're burying your sin, and you're rising to newness of life, as the New Testament says. And you're a changed person. You're a new creature, and you're walking after Jesus. That's what it means to be baptized. It means more than that, probably. But I explained that. And he said, well, can I talk to you later about this? And I said, yeah, yeah, we got time. Let's get together. So we did about a week later. And he said, uh, PC, I don't, I don't think I should get baptized. And I said, well, you, you can be baptized, and I'll baptize you later if you want to deal with that. And he kind of nodded his head. And he left, and I didn't really follow up too much. But the sad ending to that story is about six months later, he was dismissed from the team for multiple team violations. I haven't talked to him since. And some of you might say, well, why didn't you baptize him? And I'll tell you why. Because I know this text. As I said, I've known it for decades. And for some reason, I felt hesitant to say, "Um, I'll baptize you. Because I didn't want this kid one day to stand up, maybe in this day of the Lord, and say, Lord, Lord, was I not baptized by our team chaplain? And didn't I meet with him a couple times? and that he would have some sort of false assurance. 
There is a day, and we know that. This part of the scriptures, the word that I have is rejection. Rejection. Now some people ask, well, why do you do, why do you think Jesus did all these warnings? This, this is tough stuff. And my answer to that is this. Um, if you were a parent and you went to Lake Michigan, kind of to a more secluded beach, and you had your kids, you had your six-year-old, your eight-year-old, your 10-year-old, and they're so excited, they see the big waves, and they're excited, they can hardly wait, and you're grabbing your cooler, and you're grabbing your collapsible chair, and you're on your way, and all of a sudden, as a parent, you see these two yellow flags and a warning sign that says, undertow today, riptides, and your kids are already running on the sand, hoping to jump into those waves, and what do you do? You throw down that cooler and you run as fast as you can with a sense of urgency and warning, and you stop them in their tracks before one toe hits that cold sand, wet sand, and you say, hey guys, we can't go in. I know it looks so inviting, and I want, to go, I want you to go in, but there are dangers in there that you don't even see. And I know. And you could go in there and get carried out so far we would never find you again. I think that's why Jesus warns us. He warns us so that we will stay faithful. That we will love Christ. That we won't give up our faith. Now let me just give you just real quickly a couple applications here for this morning. Number one is I want you to see this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. And I'm gonna turn around and read it. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the faith. Look it. It's not wrong to examine your heart. If you don't feel sometimes days of love, none of us do. I mean, there are days when I go, you know, do, how much do I love Christ? But you examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. Secondly, Hebrews chapter three. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence to the end. If there's ever a proof text for small groups, community groups, there it is. I heard a sermon one time by John Piper, and this is what he said, eternal security, this was the title, is a community project that we hold each other accountable. This is a body. This is not a bunch of individuals that are all just scattered out there. It's a body. That's the second application. Third, 2 Timothy chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter four. Paul says this at the end of his life, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Do you see that it's a battle just to stay faithful to the very end of your life? There is no cruise control in Christianity. It's a battle to stay faithful, to love Jesus, 
to do the things of God, to bear good fruit. And today as we close, I didn't want to close on a negative kind of thing, but this is a tough passage for us to swallow. It's a warning to the church this morning. And I want you to see, I want you to see this word, reception. Reception. Do you remember when I said, many came saying, Lord, Lord, and there was this intimacy involved in that. Well, this morning, I just want you to know that Jesus is speaking to you, you who are faithful, that have loved Christ, that have believed, that have exercised faith. Yeah, we have some faults. We stumble. But I want you to know that Jesus calls out this morning, Jack, Jack, I love you, man. Michelle, Michelle, I call you my friend. I died for you. Mike, Mike, my child. Amy, Amy, I welcome you. I welcome you. That's what Jesus is doing this morning. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these words that you have given us. I ask God that your spirit would apply them to our hearts. And I pray that we would be a people who love Christ and treasure Jesus. Thank you now. I pray that we would apply these things on this day and we would be a hope-filled people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.